You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to read verses 31 through 36. We'll open in prayer, ask God's blessing upon our time. John chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You can probably notice from that scripture reading the parallel between what we read in John chapter 5 with what is here in John chapter 3. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God, we do ask your blessing upon our study and our time. We thank you that you have given to us your word, that it is clear, that it is given for our instruction, it is given for our sanctification. We thank you that your word is truth. We pray that today, as a result of our time, that we would, above and beyond the voice of a mere man, hear your words in the passage of Scripture, that we would hear what you have to say, what you have intended for us to glean from this passage and apply to our lives. And may we walk away from here with a greater appreciation of your word and your Son, who is the Word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, there is today, going on all around us, a war for the truth. It's not a new war. It's been going on since the Garden of Eden for about 6,000 years now. And though the warriors change with each passing generation and the modes of attack change and the modes of defense change, the war itself continues to rage. And each new generation that comes to the scene uh, sees on both sides of the conflict its new warriors. You always have new people attacking the truth and you always have new people who are defending the truth. But the war wages, and when you and I have long passed from the scene, and if the Lord tarries and does not come and put an end to this whole thing, then the war will continue long after we have gone from the scene, and there will be a new generation of people who attack the truth, and there will be a new generation of people who defend the truth. And the war that is being waged is for the truth, it is over the truth, and it is about the truth. And Satan, who hates the truth, is the master architect and admirable and general behind the side that attacks the truth. And God, who is a God of truth, is the subject and the object and the aim of Satan's attack. Satan hates the truth, and he always raises up a generation of people who want to compromise and deny the truth, and who likewise hate the truth. And though the methods and the manners and the means of waging the war often change, the issue itself never does. And the issue of the conflict was raised in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, in the very first recorded words of Satan, when he said, Has God said? And that has been the conflict for 6,000 years, and that will be the conflict until the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, comes back. The attack is always the same. Has God really said? Did He mean that when He said that? Can we really trust what God is saying? 
Did you misunderstand what God intended? Did God really mean that? Has He really spoken on this issue? Or is it up to us to decide? That's always the issue. Has God said? Now sometimes the attack, unfortunately and ironically, comes right inside the doors of the church. The church is described in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 as the pillar in support of the truth. That is, our job is to support the truth, to defend the truth. We are built upon the truth, and the truth is what has birthed the church. And if you could go anywhere on earth and expect to find nothing but pure truth, it would be within the church. But Satan loves to bring his attack right into the doors of the church, and you would expect that the church would see it, but in our day, it hasn't. In fact, now those who attack the truth are not only allowed into the church, they're welcomed into the church, invited into the church, and given a platform in the church. And these people don't even bother dressing up in sheep's clothing anymore. It used to be that they would try and don sheep's clothing, look around for a sheep suit, but they don't even try doing that anymore. They just come in in their wolves' garments. Sometimes they come in the form of atheists who outright deny the truth and say, God has not said. God has not said anything. The Bible is a book of myths. You can't trust what it says. And so they deny all biblical authority, all biblical truth, all revelation itself and the existence of God himself and say, basically, there is no truth. Truth is up, is up to you and I to define and to defend. Or evolutionists who will come on the scene and say, has God really said that he created the world in six 24-hour days? Has God really said that he did this not too long ago, 6,000 years ago? Has God really said how it is that he created the world and when he created the world? Has God really said that? Can we trust that? Is it myth? Is it allegory? Is it symbolism? Is it something spiritual? Has God really told us those things or are we to interpret these in terms of millions and millions of years? Of course, they're welcomed into the church, aren't they? They are, unfortunately. Or the attack comes in the form of liberal theology, which outright denies the existence of truth and says you can't really know truth. They make such a hash out of the truth that even if you thought you'd stumbled upon the truth, you couldn't really know if it was true truth or not. And liberal theology would say, we really can't know who wrote the book of Genesis, who wrote the book of Deuteronomy. We can't really know if the books that claim to be inspired actually are inspired. And so what we need to do is accept the Bible as we would any other human book and take what we can from it, glean the good parts, and throw away all of the bones. And guess what ends up being the bones with the modern theologians? Anything that doesn't fit their preferences, their predilections, and their perversions gets tossed right out as the bones. And they take what they want, which they regard as the meat. And then there's postmodernism. Postmodernism is a rejection of all truth entirely. You can't know truth. There is no truth. Truth is up for you to decide. Truth is yours to define. And what's true for you may not be true for me, and what's true for me may not be true for you. And you have to determine what you think is true, and I can't call you wrong, and you can't call me wrong, because when you find what you think is true, that's your true truth. And what I find when I, th- when I think I find what I think is true, that's my true truth. And you can't truly say that my true truth, is, which is not your true truth, is falsehood. And I can't truly say that your true truth, which is not my true truth, is falsehood because that would be wrong because there is no such thing as truth. There are no absolutes. There are no absolute truth. And you can't accept that and you can't embrace any kind of truth. You can't claim to have found the truth or to stumbled upon the truth or been able to discern the truth. And you certainly can't make a claim that the truth has been revealed. And all of those attacks have one thing in common. Has God really said? Now you would think that postmodernism, which is a denial of all truth, would find a hard time gaining ground and catching a foundation or foothold in the church, which is the pillar in support of the truth, but it hasn't. Today it's called the emergent church movement. And men like Brian McLaren, of the, who is a leader in the leaderless emergent church, loves to attack anybody who claims to have the truth or know the truth or attack any revelation which claims to be the truth. And Brian McLaren has openly come out and said, like I said, these guys don't don sheep's clothing anymore. They just come right out in their wolf's garb 
and they come out with their rose-colored, literally and figuratively, Bono U2 style glasses, their $100 haircut, their overpriced suits, and their soul patch, and they deny everything that claims to be truth. And of course, you can't have a relevant or a successful ministry unless you're going to have a soul patch and holes in your knees. So these guys come out and they promote their errors and attack anything that seems to be truth. And they disdain truth. And they say, you can't know truth. And you can't have truth. And you can't claim to have discovered truth. My question is, is that true? See how fast that falls to the ground? Is that a true statement that I can't know truth? And if that's a true statement, how do you know that that's true? Obviously, you can know that truth is true. Right? Or can you? If you can't know truth, then how can you say that that statement is true, that you can't know truth? If that's not a true statement. And though the glasses may be new and the haircut might be new and the clothes might be new, overpriced as all of them are, the attack on the truth is not new because all of them say the same thing. Has God really said? Brian McLaren has come out and said, we need to have a five-year moratorium on discussing the issue of homosexuality. The church said, stop debating and discussing the issue of homosexuality for five years. Let's just all cool our guns. Let's just all cool our jets. Take five years off. Then we'll come back together and see if we can arrive at some sort of a consensus about homosexuality. He hates those who claim to have found or know the truth. And he attacks the revelation of truth because from his perspective, has God really said? And so the issue of truth and whether or not you believe the truth and what you do with the truth and how you handle the truth and whether you accept the truth and whether you will embrace the one who is the truth These issues are before us today in our text in John chapter 3. And we've been looking at the last recorded testimony of John the Baptist concerning Jesus Christ. We've looked so far verses 27 through verse 31. 27 to 29, remember, was the passage where John described all of the reasons, three of them, why he must decrease. Verse 30 is the central idea of the whole passage. He must increase and I must decrease. That's the central idea of all of his testimony. He must increase and I must decrease. Verses 27 to 29, why I must decrease. Verses 31 through 36, all of the reasons why Jesus must increase. And John, in verses 31 to 36, gives us five things which are indicative of the preeminence, the surpassing worth and value of Jesus Christ. Why is it that He must increase? It has to do with who He is and what He has done and what He offers. And I gave you five reasons why Jesus must increase. Verses Verse 31, because he is from heaven, and just let your eyes kind of linger down through the text as I review these. Verse 31, because he is from heaven, and he is above all. Verses 32 through 34, the first part of verse 34, because he speaks words of truth. His words are truth. Verse 34, the last half of the verse, because he has the spirit without measure. Verse 35, because he is the sovereign of the universe. And verse 36, because he is the offer of salvation. Because he is from heaven and is above all, he speaks words of truth. He has the spirit without measure. He is sovereign and he is the offer of salvation. Those five things are the reasons why Jesus must increase and we, John included, must decrease. And last week we looked at one of them, that he is from heaven and he is thus above all. And it speaks of his sovereignty. It speaks of his preeminence, his supremacy, his surpassing worth and value. Now today we're looking at verse 32 through 34a, the second reason That is, he gives words and speaks words of truth. His words are truth. Look again at verses 32. We'll read them again, 32 through 34. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. 
Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is surpassing in value and worth. Jesus must be received. He must increase because He is truth. He is truth in His nature. He is truth in His being. All He said was truth. All He did was truth. He is in His very essence truth. And what He revealed and all of it is true truth. And it can be known. And He did not come to make things mystical or unknown, to veil things and to make them confusing. He came to reveal who God is, the means of salvation, and heaven itself. Now, verses 32 and following, this second point, that He speaks words of truth, it is necessarily connected to the first point, that He is from heaven and is above all. He is from heaven and He is above all and He is supreme. And if He is from heaven, if He came from heaven sent by God, then listen, it must necessarily follow that what He says is true. It has to be because He speaks of those things which He has seen and heard. Do you notice how John uses that phrase? What He has seen and heard, of that He testifies. Now I ask you this. John the Baptist, who is uttering these words, could speak of heaven. He could speak of the means of salvation. He could speak of the Lamb of God. He could speak of Him who came from heaven and who is here, who was Himself truth, who was the author of salvation, who came to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist could testify concerning Jesus. But here was the limitation of John the Baptist. John the Baptist spoke those things which are revealed to him. John the Baptist did not utter things which were his by first-hand experience and knowledge. You see, John the Baptist had never been to heaven. John the Baptist had never existed with God. So if you want to know what heaven is like and what hell is like, if you want to know the way of salvation and what God the Father is like and what God the Son is like and what God the Holy Spirit is like and how they work together in unity in Trinity, if you want to know the means of salvation, the way of salvation and what God requires, then there is one person to whom we must turn whose testimony surpasses all other testimony and that would be the one who came from heaven itself. If he came from heaven and if he is above all, then it must be true that everything he says is absolute truth. That's John's point. And what he has seen and what he heard of that he testifies. That was simply a proverbial way of saying what he has by way of knowledge, he has firsthand, he is, in, the, in our vernacular, he is an eyewitness, testi- an eyewitness testifying to the things which he himself has personally seen and heard. You want to know about heaven? Listen to Jesus. He has seen it. He has heard it. He has been there. He came from heaven. So he knows what true truth is, and he knows the truth about heaven, and he knows the truth about God, and he knows the truth about the Father, and he came to reveal those things to us. You want to know true truth? Listen to Jesus. He can give you true truth because he testifies the things that he has seen and the things that he has heard. That is what John has been laying out since the beginning of the book of John. Just remember, put that phrase in its context for you and just for a second. John chapter 1, Jesus was in the bosom of the Father and He has revealed Him. John chapter 1 verse 18. Jesus said Himself in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus did not receive Jesus' testimony. And so Jesus said to um, Nicodemus, You have not believed Me when I've told you earthly things. How will you believe Me if I tell you heavenly things? And then Jesus described Himself. No man has come, no man knows what these heavenly things are but Me, the Son of Man, who has both ascended and descended from heaven. He came from heaven and thus He knows heavenly truth. And when John says that Jesus saw and heard certain things, he is describing the intimacy of the communion that Jesus enjoyed with the Father. Jesus knew the Father because He had seen the Father, He had heard the Father, and He knew the Father intimately. And so He could reveal to us the Father. That's why Jesus in John 14 said, Philip, you've seen Me. And if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. There is nothing else for you to see. 
I have revealed everything there is to reveal to you because I and the Father are one. And I come from heaven. And what I have seen and what I have heard, I have told you. Flip over to where we were reading in a scripture reading, John chapter 5. I want you to see how Jesus uses this term of seeing and hearing. John chapter 5, verse 18 says, The Jews were seeking to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath and calling God his Father and thus making himself equal with God. So Jesus knew what they were trying to do. Jesus knew they were trying to kill him. They knew that everything that he had said thus far, they understood to be a claim to deity. And so they said, you're blasphemy. You can't claim to have God as your father. That would make you equal with God. And here's the irony of John chapter 5. Jesus doesn't step back away from the claim and say, hold on, hold on, hold on a second. You guys thought I was claiming to be God? I'm sorry, there must be some confusion. Let me clear that up. He understood, Jesus understood exactly what they understood, that he was claiming to be God. And rather than back away from that claim, Jesus ratcheted it up a notch. And he said, now, if you think that healing on the Sabbath got stuck in your craw, wait till I tell you this. The Father has committed all judgment to me. I am the one who will raise all men, some to a resurrection of life and some to a resurrection of judgment. I am the one who will judge all men. I am the one who has known the Father. I am the one who testifies of truth. I am the one whom Moses wrote about. You think, Healing on the Sabbath got them mad. Everything Jesus said took it up a whole other notch. And He said, if you think that is a problem for you to swallow, wait till you hear this. Here are all the ways that I and my Father are one. And I am qualified to speak on these issues. So look at verse 19. Therefore the Jews, or Jesus answered and was saying to them, I say to you the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees, sees, sees the Father doing. You see that? Jesus is describing with that phrase His own intimacy with the Father and His cooperation with the Father in all things. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus do anything of His own initiative on His own power while He was here on earth? Did He? Think of anything Jesus did of His own initiative by His own power while He was here on earth. Nothing. Nothing. Everything Jesus did, He did with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. No member of the Trinity acts by Himself. Everything the Father does, the Son and the Spirit likewise do in union, in fellowship, in communion with one another. That is why the work of the Son, the work of the Father, the work of the Holy Spirit, they are all together in that, in salvation, in redemption, and in all things. That's why Jesus said, I can't do anything on my own. I'm not a renegade member of the Trinity. I do only those things that I see the Father doing, and I do the things which please the Father. I am one with the Father. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And the greater works that the Father showed the Son, the Son did. Now look at chapter, or verse 30 of the same chapter. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. See what Jesus is saying? I only do and I only say those things that I have seen and that I have heard. What I have seen and what I have heard. Back to John chapter 3. So the things that Jesus has seen and the things that Jesus has heard, those are the things He revealed and testified to. And then look what John says. And no one receives His testimony. Now you would think that such a repository of divine wisdom, divine revelation, divine truth, knowledge about heaven, knowledge about hell, knowledge about the way of salvation, the condition of man, the Father and the Spirit and Himself, you would think that such a comprehensive wellspring of knowledge, wisdom, and truth, that men would flock to that. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think they would come and gladly receive that testimony and gladly say, give me more. Tell me more. 
I will accept and embrace everything that you give to me. Give me more of this truth. But here's the general truth, the general statement. No one receives his testimony. That doesn't mean that no individual and no one without exception received his testimony because verse 33 says there were some who did. He who does receive sets a seal to this that God is true. But generally speaking, concerning the nation, concerning the people, his own family members and all men just in general, people did not receive him. They didn't accept his testimony. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he came into his own and his own didn't receive him. There were some who received him. To them he gave the power to become the children of God. But generally speaking, Jesus' lot was one of rejection. His nation rejected him. His people rejected him. His family rejected him. Basically, all men rejected him. There were a few who embraced him and received him. And we're gonna, we saw those in chapter one. Remember, there were five disciples, Philip and Nathaniel and John and Andrew and Peter, those five disciples. They embraced him and received him. We know some of the other twelve did, not Judas, of course, but they embraced him. Then at the end of chapter two, remember there was a statement that all the crowds were going after him, but Jesus didn't commit himself to any of them because he knew what was in man. He knew that their attraction to him and their their hanging on to him was superficial and fickle at best. And then we get into chapter 3. Did Nicodemus receive him? No. Jesus said, I told you earthly things and you don't believe me. You don't receive me. You do not believe. That was the condemnation of Nicodemus. Then John's own testimony right here. No one receives his testimony, even though what he says is truth. Do you realize it is easier to sell a lie than it is to give away the truth? You can sell a lie and make millions, but people will not accept the truth for free. Now, why is that the case? Why is it that Jesus was so roundly rejected? Is it because he was a poor communicator? Is it because he had a difficult time marketing his message? Is it because he simply didn't know what words to communicate to appear hip and relevant and in with the cultural fads of his time? Was Jesus a failure in communicating divine truth? If no, then why is it that people rejected him? Why is it that nobody receives his testimony? We already covered this, chapter 3, verse 19 and 21. Because men loved darkness, right? And they hated the light, and they will not come to the light because they do not want their deeds to be exposed. That is why they reject Jesus. They hate the light, they love their darkness and iniquity, And they do not want their darkness and their iniquity exposed by coming to the one who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life. Now this statement by John, no one receives his testimony, it almost seems that that statement is intended to sort of correct the hyperbolic statement of his disciples in verse 26 when they said, everybody's going to him. Remember the disciples that come to him? That's what sort of raised this whole issue to begin with. He who you testified to on the other side of the Jordan, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. John, you got to do something about this. And this is John's way of saying, look, nobody receives his testimony. Yeah, but the crowds, look at the crowds around him. Nobody receives his testimony. But there are people who are milling around and he's the talk of the town. But who among those who regard him as the talk of the town, among those who have sort of clinged on to him outwardly, how many of them actually believed? Many or a few? You are going to see as we work our way through the Gospel of John, over and over and over again that the commitment and the conviction and the attraction of the crowds was shallow and superficial and fickle at best. That is why Jesus never committed himself to the masses. He knew what was in men, and he knew that among all of those who surrounded him, sometimes tens of thousands of people, whole regions of the country, they wanted him for what they thought he could provide for them, 
not for what he was actually offering to them. And then when Jesus began to speak the truth, they demonstrated their utter disdain for the truth by turning and walk away, walking away from him and following him no more. Make for us bread, free lunch, free meal. This is the best welfare program we've ever seen. We'll cling to you. We'll stay for that. But give us words of truth. No, I would rather buy my bread than sit and get free bread and listen to words of truth. That was the response of the crowds. And so they turned away from him en masse. Why? Because no one receives his testimony. But he who has received his testimony, verse 33, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. To receive the testimony of Jesus and to embrace Jesus, to believe on him, to affirm him, to reach out by faith and entrust yourself to him is to set your seal to this statement. God is true. God is true. How do I know if somebody believes that God is a God of truth and that his word is true? By this, they have embraced and affirmed and received the testimony of Jesus Christ as absolute truth. Now, what is that phrase, he has set his seal? What does that mean? In ancient times, great men, rather than using a signature, because many of them probably couldn't write back then, rather than using a signature, would affix their seal to something. So they would take a seal and they would stamp things that belonged to them. And by stamping something that belonged to them, like branding cattle almost, you would be affirming that this thing belongs to you. This is mine. I have set my seal to it, thus it belongs to me, and I'm affirming this thing as my own. The seal then came to be used by the time of Jesus, almost like a signature. If you affixed your seal to a document, it meant you affirmed everything in that document was true, and you were entrusting yourself and your credibility and your integrity to the contents of that document. That's the way in which John is using it here. Let me give you an illustration. Just this last week, Deidre and I finally, after many months, had our last will and testament finalized. It took us lots of months, not because it's a difficult process. We thought it was going to be at first. We got the papers that we were to fill out, and we actually put it on our calendar, scheduled a night, and distracted the kids for something. We thought, we got to sit down, we got to do this. It took us two and a half minutes to fill out the paperwork for the thing. We sent it away. A week later, we got a proof of it in the email. It said, read this. It took us another two and a half minutes. Then we finally got the final version in the mail. It sat in our cupboard for about two and a half, three months, until we finally went down this last week, and we had it finalized. Now, most people say that when you have your last will and your your last will and testament done, that people put it off because they're afraid to die. They don't want to discuss death. They don't want to talk about those things and what's going to happen when they die. That wasn't the reason for us at all. I'm not afraid of death. I'm actually looking forward to it. And I know that I'm going to die. Not today, hopefully, but I know that I'm going to die. I put it off just simply because there are always bigger fish to fry and you sort of just got to put off on the side. And you know how that is because if I were to take a show of hands, I would be willing to bet probably most people in here haven't done a final will and testament. But anyway, back to the point of the whole illustration. The point of the whole illustration is in order to have it finalized, we had to go in, Deidre and I, and we had two different copies of the document. We had to sign full signature, and they used my full name, which I hate. had to sign my full signature because I've never signed my, my middle name. So it looks like my signature, but my middle name is all, it's different on every page because I never practiced doing that. So I had to sign my full name at the bottom of every single page of this document, all seven or eight pages of it, and we had to do this in the presence of two witnesses. And they had to witness what was going on there. I had to sign my copy. Deidre had to sign her copy. Then each of the two witnesses had to likewise sign the document. And then we had a notary of the public who was there. She had to sign the document. Then she had to fix the stamp on the document, stamp the document, and sign the stamp. The notary of the public had to set her seal to that document, that it was valid, it was binding, and that this was indeed a statement of us being behind what the contents of the document. I had to sign the document. The witnesses had to sign the document because everybody in that room had to put their seal to it. That is how we use the term today. And here's John's point. 
When you receive Jesus Christ, you set your seal, you sign off on, you sign on the bottom line of this statement, God is true. How is it that we do that? And when did we do that? You did that the moment that you believed and you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. This is not an ongoing action. It's not an ongoing action. This is something when you trust Christ, you are saying this. He says, I'm a sinner. I believe that. He says that I'm a lawbreaker. I believe that. He says that He is the atonement for my sin and that He offers me salvation on the basis, by His grace, on the basis of faith in Him alone. And I believe that. And He has told me that if I repent and turn from my sin and believe on Him for salvation, that He will forgive my sins. That He will give me a new nature. He will cause me to be born again. He will fill me with His Spirit. He will adopt me as His child. He will take me to heaven to live forever with Him. And He will grant me everlasting life at the moment of my salvation. I believe that what He has promised and what He has said is true. I'm going to bank on that by believing on Him. And when I sign my name, as it were, when I commit myself to Jesus, I am in effect saying, I believe that what God has said is true, God by His nature is true, and what God has promised is true. And I am trusting myself to Him because He is true truth. So when you receive his testimony, when you believe on Christ for salvation, you are signing off on the fact that you believe that God is true. Therefore, to embrace Christ is to embrace God. To love Christ is to love God. To trust Christ is to trust God. To believe on Jesus Christ is to believe on God himself. And it is to affirm what you believe about God when you affirm what you believe about Jesus. Have somebody describe to you who they think Jesus is, what they think Jesus did, and they will be describing to you their own view of their God. To believe on Jesus is to believe on God Himself, and to entrust yourself to Jesus is to entrust yourself to God. This destroys the whole myth of neutrality. Somebody says, well, I believe this about Jesus, but not this about Jesus. And I'm really kind of undecided about the Jesus issue. Not sure whether I should embrace Him or trust Him or not. Not sure what I'm going to do with this person called Jesus. That's not being neutral. That's making a decision. That is already signing your line on your name on the statement that I believe God is a liar. That is to call God a liar. To reject Jesus is to say, I do not believe that what God has said concerning His Son, concerning salvation, and concerning His wrath upon me is actually true. So to reject Jesus is to call God a liar. That is the highest crime and one of the highest blasphemies that could ever be uttered against the King of Heaven. To call God a liar. How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? How can you escape the wrath of God if you will spurn Jesus Christ and not trust Him and embrace Him for salvation? Do you see why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness? Do you see why it is in chapter 3, verse 36 of John's Gospel that he says, He who believes in the Son has life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him? Why does the wrath of God abide on him? Because the person who will not obey and believe the Son is essentially saying to the Father, I believe that you are a liar. And that is blasphemy. And the wrath of God justly abides on all who reject Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture and as he is revealed in history. There are a lot of ways that you can call God a liar. One of them is by not rege- uh, not entrusting yourself and embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. You can also call God a liar by ignoring His Word. By ignoring His Word. When you hear a warning from Scripture and you do not heed it, when you become a hearer of the Word only and not a doer of the Word, you're calling God a liar. 
If I were to tell you this building's going to collapse in 60 seconds and we're all going to die, every man for himself. If I were to utter that statement and you sat here for 61 seconds, 65 seconds, minute and a half, you would be demonstrating something about your belief about what I've said, right? I've given you a warning and you have not heeded the warning. By you not heeding the warning, you are saying to me, Jim, I think you're a liar. You're not telling me the truth. To not heed the warnings of Scripture is to call God a liar. To neglect His Word is to call God a liar. To spurn it, the thing which He says is necessary for our salvation, our security and our sanctification, our holiness and our growth in Christ, to neglect that is to say, I don't believe that what you say about your Word and about your Son and about yourself is truth. And I'm going to neglect that and I'm going to instead say that I think God is a liar. To distort or to twist Scripture is to call God a liar. To treat Scripture irreverently is to call God a liar. That's why I'm so vexed by all the happy, slappy, entertainment-based tripe that goes on from most pulpits and stages. That's why it vexes the true child of God. You know why? Because the Word of God is pushed off to the side and replaced with anecdotes and stories and quotes and quips and video clips and everything which might entertain goats. That says more than we like to admit about our view of Scripture. Whatever the doctrinal statement may say, irrelevant. Show me what somebody does with the Bible. And I'll tell you not only what they believe about Scripture, but what they believe about Jesus and what they believe about God. I don't care what the doctrinal statement says. That's why all the nonsense is so vexing. How can you see that happen to the Word of God and not be vexed in your soul that the Word of God is neglected in that way? And I believe, and I've written on this, I believe to say that God speaks to me apart from Scripture is to call God a liar. This book contains everything necessary for life and godliness. Everything. The only thing I know for certain that God has ever said to me is between the covers of this book. And I cannot make the claim God has said to me without running the risk that I am misquoting or misrepresenting God. When I say God spoke to me and He told me this, and it's not something in Scripture, I'm running the risk of calling God a liar because I am attaching His name to something that may or may not be true. And if it is not true, I'm calling God a liar by affixing His name to a false statement. Do you like being misquoted? Do you like being misrepresented? Do you like it when people put words in your mouth and say you said things that you never said? Does that make you happy or glad? Are you delighted when people do that to you? Well, if you don't like it, how do you think the God of truth feels about it? I think He takes that very seriously. I tremble to think what that means for people who say, God spoke to me and He told me this. Friends, those are all the ways, and there are more, that we can call God a liar, just in our day-to-day conversation and vernacular and our treatment of the Word. How is it that I affirm that I believe that God is true and that God is truth? It begins with this. I receive the testimony that He has given concerning His Son. That's John's point. He is saying to everybody who is listening, and He's saying to us this, if you receive His testimony and follow Him and embrace Him and love Him and obey Him and believe on Him and affirm Him and entrust yourself to Him, then you are signing off on the statement. You are fixing your seal. You are entrusting your eternity to this truth, that God is true and that God has revealed Himself, that He has spoken and that He is serious and that He will keep you. And you are entrusting yourself to God Himself and affirming that God is able to do what He said He promised He will do. But if you reject Him, if you turn your back on Him, you are in essence saying, God is a liar. Because I will not trust and I will not embrace what God has said He has done for me in Christ.
To honor the Son is to honor the Father. To dishonor the Son is to dishonor the Father. To believe on the Son is to entrust yourself to the keeping of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the question for us remains, what do we do with the Word of God? Revealed in Scripture and revealed in His Son. Do we trust it? Do we embrace it? Do we receive that? Do we communicate that trust and that embrace and that reception in the things that we do and our belief that God is true and that what is revealed in Christ is true and that I will entrust myself to that? Let's pray together. Father, we bless You that You have revealed to us in Scripture Yourself. You have given us these things and entrusted these things to us and You have made Yourself known. You have spoken. You have spoken clearly. You have spoken authoritatively. You have spoken permanently. And not one jot and not one tittle of this Word will pass away. Your Word is lasting and it endures forever. And it is pure and it is holy and it is true. And we pray, O God, that You would give us that confidence in Your Word. We who have responded to the Gospel of salvation have committed our trust and ourselves to Christ. And we are banking our eternal destiny on this truth that You are true and that You will keep those things which You have committed, that we have committed unto You against that day. We thank You that we can have that confidence in You and that You have opened our eyes to respond to the truth and to love the truth. And we thank You that You have delivered us from, truth, from error to truth and from darkness into light. We thank You for these things in the name of Your Son and pray Your blessing as we walk away from here this day. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.